Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Experiments Web Clinic Audio Replay Podcast. Marketing Experiments is an internet marketing research laboratory. The web clinic you are about to hear was broadcast live to an international audience of marketing professionals. Sign up to be invited to future web clinics, as well as gain access to all of our online marketing research at marketingexperiments.com. Hello, and welcome to another Marketing Experiments Web Clinic. Today we're going to be talking about the top lessons we've learned from 2010. We're going to tell you what worked and what didn't in the last year of experimentation. If you've been on Web Clinics before, welcome back. If not, let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. This isn't your regular webinar. This is way more interactive. Uh, first of all, we invite you to tweet using hashtag WebClinic. We also invite you to uh, give us your questions using the Q&A function and go to webinar. We have Bob Kemper, our Director of Sciences, monitoring those questions. He's going to answer some, as well as Bethany Caudell, our Customer Service Specialist. We also, right here in the studio with us, have Joely Para and Austin McCraw monitoring your questions, and we're going to try to give some to our team if we have time for it. Normally, if you've tuned in before, you would be hearing the voice, the deep, resonant voice of Dr. Flint McLaughlin. He's the Managing Director, the CEO of MechLabs, the founder of our company. But right now, he is in Barcelona, Spain, teaching to Citrix Worldwide audience about pay-per-click and SEO. So unfortunately, you will not hear from him. To make that up for you, we are going to have more people on a web clinic than we've ever had before, we believe. If you go to markingexperiments.com, you can go in a research directory and see these web clinics go back for years. So we didn't look at each and every web clinic. But we cannot remember a web clinic before when we had six people on. We're also going to be sharing six case studies with you. Again, more than we've ever done before. So. We're going to try to fit that all into 60 minutes, along with some of your questions that we solicited before this call. But again, use hashtag WebClinic on Twitter or use the Q&A function on GoToWebinar to ask other questions. And if we have time, we'll try to get to as many as we can. We don't have time to go through the bios of each and every picture you see here of the person behind them. But you can go to markexperiments.com slash blog, look on the About section. I assure you they've all got pretty impressive blogs. But I just want to quickly let you know who's going to be on. We've got Gabby Paz. Dustin Eicholt, Adam Lapp, John Powell, and Corey Trent, all from our labs. And I'm Daniel Burstein, the Director of Editorial Content. With that, let's dive right into our first lesson. We've got six lessons for you. I'm going to be teaching the final lesson. We're very excited of all the, the case studies we saw. It's a Facebook case study. I, I really look forward to talking about it. We're going to dive into our first lesson so we can tell you what worked and what did not in 2010. And I've got to tell you that what did not, we're, we're going to be sharing some of our failures as well. But the first lesson is, do not underestimate the effect offline media can have online. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Gabby. Thank you, Dan. And before we jump in right into the, the actual test, let me give uh, the audience a little bit of background about the research partner. This is a, a well-known news publication. Uh, we work with them in optimizing and testing their home delivery services, uh, the online registration for the home delivery services. So, of course, the goal is to increase the number of subscriptions. And in our testing, we want to discover which page or processes will generate the most subscriptions for them. Here's uh, the control of the page that we use as a control for, for these tests. Two things that you really need to know about this page. First is that this page has gone through several iterations of testing and optimization. So it's a page that is working really well for our partner. It promotes their uh, weekend edition, and it can be accessible from their main website throughout many links. Uh, so it's easy for any visitors to access this page. 
Um, so what happens is that our uh, research partners has a great number of uh, direct mail campaigns uh, happening throughout the year. And what we saw identified with this page is that it receives slightly more traffic when these campaigns, these offline campaigns go on. Uh, so we wonder how many of the direct market, direct mail uh, recipients will not follow necessarily the URL, uh, the vanity URL that the direct mail piece had. Instead, they went directly to the website and found their way through uh, the website to this specific page. So things that you need to know about the, the background of this test. Uh, every, of course, every uh, specific direct mail piece had specific URLs that can be tracked and measured. So in theory, you think that all the tracking of the offline campaigns can be very easy and accurate. But as I mentioned, there's still some of your target group that will necessarily follow instructions. They will wander around the website and then find their way through uh, either a generic page or any other product pages that you may have in your website. So we tested this hypothesis and uh, we combined forces with the offline team and gathered uh, the, the efforts that they were working for the next direct mail campaign. Let's look at the test that we set it up. So this is the direct mail piece. Uh, please take a look at the, the layout and the images. It's a very simple form uh, where people can sign up for the home delivery services. Uh, just take a moment to see the, kind, the type of images and of course the, the look and feel of the form. Now we can see the changes that we made. Very simple changes, for example, just adapting instead of the dog image, we used uh, one of the images from the direct mail piece. Let's look also at the second page this is the form page. This is the online page for, for the, the subscription path. And again, we did just a small change, which is we inserted, inserted a handwritten image just to give a look and feel or the same feeling that it was from the direct mail piece. Here you have side by side a quick summary of uh, the control and the treatment. Again, we just changed, we made two, basically two changes, the images the image and the landing page, and inserted the handwritten image in the form in the second page. Let's look at the results. So as you can see, this is a huge increase in conversion rate. So 124% increase in conversions. And one thing that is very important to note is that this gain was sustainable only throughout when the direct mail piece was in circulation. Two weeks after it stopped circulation, then we saw a drop in, in the treatment conversion rate. And it went to non-statistical uh, significance uh, compared to the control. So one thing that we, of course, can validate is that there is, of course, an overlap of your offline campaigns and an impact in your online uh, campaigns and our online pages that you use for, for those particular services like subscription or, or sales or promotions that you are running. So what can we learn uh, from this test or apply a, a basic principle for this is there is, of course, a significant overlap between online and offline.
but it's our job to identify not only where the overlap might be happening, but also how can we tie the campaigns closely together so the, the connection for the visitor is seamless. Uh, they don't see a disconnection from, from the print uh, piece that they saw and then a different piece in, the, in, the, in their website or, or landing pages. Thanks, Gabby, and that's very interesting because for the mar you marketers on the line, we'd love to hear via hashtag WebClinic on Twitter your thoughts and your opinions. What have you seen between online engagement and offline response? And likely, in many companies, it might not necessarily be the same res marketer responsible for both online marketing as well as the direct mail and TV and print or whatever you have. So you probably have that extra layer of challenge of, okay, how do you work with your counterparts uh, in offline marketing and let them know that there could be effect online. So one way I would say is when this uh, replay is available uh, next Thursday, you can see the replay by signing up for at marketingexperiments.com for our email list. We'll let you know when the replay is available. Show it to your, your offline colleagues as well because if you're mostly focused on online marketing, you're likely attending webinars like this where you're worried about things like conversion rate and open rates and emails. And your offline marketing colleagues are the same. They don't even sometimes think or, or focus on online marketing. So make sure you, you, you introduce them to some of this uh, research we have so they can see the impact of working with you more closely. With that, let's move on to our next lesson. Lesson number two, do not assume the marketing masses are going in the right direction. With that, promised I'd give him a hard time. Dustin, the new guy, his first web clinic. All right, Dustin, bring it. What do you got? Thanks a lot, Dan. Just to give you an idea on the background of, the, um, of this partnership, the partner produces accounting and payroll management software and sells it through their online uh, e-commerce website. Our goal, just like most partnerships, is to increase revenue generated by the page. Let's just take a quick look at the control page, what we're working to optimize. So we're going to focus on three areas uh, that we would like to test in our A-B split test. Look at page layout, try and minimize the friction on that. Look at the page copy and the images, try and increase the value proposition and the clarity of that, as well as the product selection process. It's crucial to preserve and improve upon the overall value messaging, uh, showcasing the product features and benefits, and the product selection process goes hand in hand with that. So we crafted multiple treatments that dealt with these issues, and let's take a look at our first one. You'll notice it's a... <clears throat> The first treatment we uh, crafted based around a conversion heuristic, it was a simple single column layout. This worked to decrease the friction. Um, we also had a strong product image and a drop box for selecting the product. To allow for further product uh, benefit showcasing, we have a three column element towards the bottom with links to learn more uh, for different uh, important features of the product. So let's take a look at treatment two. This is another radical treatment that we uh, were, were working on. It featured the tabbed layout. It had the same strong imagery towards the top uh, with the inclusion of some screenshots of the product itself. Had the same drop down uh, as far as product selection. But the main difference was this tabbed format towards the bottom, which brought a lot more detail about the product. Um, we felt it added a lot more uh, value messaging. You can see it might be tough to see the four tabs are 100% money-back guarantee. We had a uh, tab for product features, tab for product screenshots, as well as an FAQ section. So before we get to the results, we can actually see the two treatments in the control side by side. 
again, the control with its, um, you know, limited copy and image and three boxes displaying the products. Treatment one, very simple, simple array, strong product image, strong headline, and a few bullet points there. Very clear call to action. Treatment two, the very popular tabs layout. Um, you know, it was it was our hypothesis around the office that, that this treatment would be the overall winner as you've probably seen tab layouts all over the web. They're extremely popular. Uh, so we decided, you know, what better way to put a lot of value messaging, incorporate a lot of details of the product. It's a very detail-rich uh, product in a way that's simple and easy for the viewers to see. And let's get to the results. Treatment one, the single column, was actually the winner with a 13% increase in the conversion rate. What's probably most surprising and a really big takeaway from this is the tab layout. The layout we felt would be the winner actually decreased conversion rate by a relative 3% versus the control. So the key insight that we get from this just speaks to the to the overall importance of online testing. Uh, you know, you might see a very popular layout, format, um, a popular call to action placement, what have you, and think that it'll work uh, for your website. But without testing, there's really no way of telling. And it could even lead to a small but significant decrease in your revenue stream. In summary, never speculate, always test. Oh, you're you're not done, Dustin. You're the new guy. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna make it a little harder than that. Okay. First of all, are there any thoughts on why this page underperformed? One thought we had was, you know, you have a lot of details, but it's necessary for the for the visitor to engage, and a lot of times, you know, they're not they're not interested in engaging. Maybe they're ready to buy, and you know, you present this all this detail, and that can actually add add uh, friction to the page because you have all these undue elements that are just not necessary to the conversion uh, process. Adam, I think you have some thoughts around that too. Sure. This is also a, a very well-known brand. So, you know, if, if you're going to buy a Apple iPod, you really don't need to know all of the details about the product in order to make a purchasing decision. So that may be another reason why uh, all the information provided in the tabs did not help conversion rate because people were already very motivated and already knew the brand very well. And this is Corey speaking. Uh, another thing, especially with software as well, is I think that you also need to consider your audience. Depending on who's actually buying this product, some people actually might like a lot of details. So one follow-up test that we could possibly do on this is somehow try to segment the incoming traffic on understanding who they are. And we might come to find out that for a certain niche population that is actually interested in this process, that the tabs more detailed layout is more popular. Like for example, when you're buying computer hardware and things like that, sites like Newegg, Tiger Direct, they have very rich pages on a lot of details because for some and probably most of their customers, they're really interested in those small intricate details. And the same might be true here. However, for the sample that we selected here or the or the incoming uh, channels to this page might just have a, a more uh, demographic of people that aren't interested in these full details. So that's also something to notice as well. You know, we know a lot. I don't want to brag or anything, but we know a lot with all the testing we do around here, but we don't know everything at all. That's why we test. If, if, if we knew everything, we could just, you know, simply make the changes that we knew would uh, give the biggest conversions. 
And so one thing we want to do is turn it over to you, the professional marketer, and, and let us know what are some of your biggest questions? What, what should we be answering? So we got some great questions. Um, one of them was, what is the meaning of life? Uh, that's an easy one. If you go to, there's a technology called Google.com, and if you go to the Google and you type define colon life, then you'll get that answer. But we're not going to answer the questions that are that easy that you can just simply Google. We're going to dive into the harder questions. So we've got a few that we've already pre-selected. Right now, the first question is, and we got this from a bunch of different people, including Robert Reich. I'm assuming that's not the former Treasury Secretary, but what is the fastest, easiest way to increase conversion? That's what Melanie Beck wanted to know. Who wants to tackle that one? What is the fastest, easiest way to increase conversion? Well, I can help with that, uh, Dan. I mean, of course, we would like to know specifically what her particular problem is. If it's about, say, for example, a landing page that is not converting well for her or a specific uh, subscription path. But in general, I would say, I mean, always, of course, follow the, the, the optimization sequence that we have presented over and over. You will see that motivation is the first thing that will give you the highest uh, bang for the buck. So if you match motivation, say, for example, you start looking at your banners or your pay-per-click ads, and then you look at your landing page, make sure that, that headline copy and call to action are aligned with that motivation that you uh, started with the banner or the ad, the ad offer. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are two great ways. Um, you know, reducing friction, definitely probably one of the easiest. Are you asking something of your, of your audience, of your visitor uh, traffic that is undue or unnecessary? Um, something that can be done later on in the, in the sales process. Another thing, um, you know, I was encouraged taking a really strong look at the value proposition. Um, you know, making sure it's as clear as possible, not only saying who you are and what, you know, what the visitor can do, but also why should they do it from you? Why should they buy your product, sign up for your free demo, sign up for your newsletter, et cetera? This is John. I actually wanted to point this out. I, it, whether it's motivation or value, friction, incentive, um, the fastest way to increase or decrease your conversion is to do something radically different. Um, you can't m expect any change unless you do something that is different, that is significantly different. Um, when you're measuring for statistical significance, you're looking to see if the data tells you if one page is statistically different from the other. So if you actually don't create something that's really uh, seriously meaningful, seriously different than the other page, then I wouldn't expect anything monumental unless it happened to really uh, – really chime in on the motivations of the user or the value or, or, or whatnot. And another way to accomplish an increase in conversion very quickly is to not make mistakes over and over again. So the more changes you make that prove ineffective, the slower your increase in conversion is going to be. So the best way to uh, prevent that from happening is make sure you look at your data first. And so um, your data might tell you that your landing page is already doing a very effective job. So no matter how much you increase the value proposition on the landing page, you're probably not going to get that big of an increase in conversion. Uh, looking at your data, you might find that step three is where everybody's dropping off. So that's going to be where you need to focus on to, uh, to increase your conversion quickly without re-doubling uh, your efforts. And this is Corey. I think Adam brought up a good point at looking at your uh, data, and that's really one of the things I think that sets us apart is, 
you know, really taking a look at what the numbers tell us. Because a lot of times we let emotions drive our testing, and that's where we get into trouble, not only with bad optimization uh, elements, but also what we think should be priority in testing when that's not really the case. Another thing that, that I've found quite helpful, especially in doing it with my partners this year, has been uh, using your internal resources more, and namely talking to people within your organizations that interface with customers. A lot of us have sales teams, we have customer service teams, or other people in our organization that talk to clients all the time, and they can give you a feel for what people really struggle with, or what questions people really have, or what people are really looking for. And a lot of times, the juiciest uh, optimization tidbits that you can gain um, might be just talking with people down the hall or taking a trip down to the second level and going into the customer service center. <laughs> but um, again, we, we treat these things as separate and we don't you know, talk to these people when a, a lot of times they're the ones that are having the conversations with our customers and, and can sometimes know them a lot better than we think we do. All right, we've got a great question in from Hashtag Web Clinic, and I want to throw it at you guys. I, I like to try to challenge them with an on-the-spot question. They say, if you make radical changes, how can you know what little changes made the bigger difference? Adam, you want to try to uh, address that? So the original question was, how do you increase conversion quickly? So uh, by uh, solving that question, you're not, in, in, in essence, not trying to necessarily learn from your testing as much as you are trying to just yield the result. But if you are trying to learn from, from testing, um, we, we often suggest to uh, start with a radical redesign to just fix the whole page or whole path in general. And then once you find a uh, type of design, a category of design that you feel is, is working better than the others, then it's time to, to fine tune. Then it's time to test headlines, test colors, test you know swapping things back and forth. You know, test small things to you know, take that one design you you you've tested into that you've determined is better than other radical designs, uh, and and fine tune it and maximize the uh, the return on on that page's investment. Thanks, Adam. As Dr. McLaughlin said, some things it's better to optimize, and some things it's better to just scrap and start over. So. If you've got a rickety house, for example, with a very poor foundation, do you want to just keep remodeling that house? Just tear it down and build a new house. <laughs> might be easier. And I got one more one more point to add to this particular question. Um, you know, oftentimes we see uh, research partners who only want to focus on the homepage. That's you know, that's their their bread and butter. That's where people. That's uh, the outward-facing page that you know most visitors see. But a lot of times that's a page that's very difficult to tie conversions to because there's so many steps in between. So one mistake we see happening um, that slows the increase in conversion is focusing on the home page rather than uh, a product page, which is sort of the, the last step, the last decision point uh, before uh, making that purchase. All right. Thanks a lot, Adam. And thanks a lot, I believe it's at MCJ for submitting that question on hashtag web clinic. With that, let's move on to the next lesson, lesson three. When it comes to metrics, relying on tools alone is never enough. We got Corey, our analytics master, to address that. Thanks, Stan. Uh, give a little bit of background on this study. We were working with uh, one of the largest, well, actually, the one of, yeah, one of the largest uh, UK travel sites um, that provide vacations to Orlando to uh, UK residents. Uh, so with that, we're looking at their checkout process, um, and we had 
the main question was, you know, what cart process was going to yield the highest uh, checkout rate. Let's go ahead and go over the um, the items that we tested. So kind of a longer page, so we split it up into two slides. This is the control, so take a minute to look over it. Um, it's a very simple shopping cart. Um, I think a couple of things that they do well is, it, for the most part, it's pretty clean. Um, there's a lot going on on this page, but they've kind of taken the stance that um, consolidating the form to one step is going to be best for them. So that's what they've done here. They do have some pretty clear headings on their individual sections on selecting delivery method, things like that. Uh, and they do have some options for checkout, which does kind of add some friction to the process. There are some interrupts and things to consider throughout. Continuing down the page, when we get to the payment section, again, they they have a pretty clean form. It's not, it's not a terrible... Um, checkout process, which is tough when I get a partner like that and I have to start with good pages. Um, but you can also see um, that they have some pretty clear wording. They have elements like book with confidence. So again, they're trying to address the anxiety that people will have. Um, and again, kind of overall a simple and pretty clean process. With that, we developed up a treatment that had some pretty key changes in it. Uh, number one, on first glance, it doesn't seem all that different, but there are some key differences. Starting from the top, you'll see that there's an image now. Um, I've actually worked with a couple of vacation sites uh, now at this point, and one thing that we've learned uh, is that with vacations, images uh, mean a lot to the shoppers. Um, it's a very emotional buy for a lot of people. Um, so visualizing yourself and taking the vacation was our hypothesis in this section that we've seen work well in testing, but this was actually the first time that we've added an element in the shopping cart process with this partner. Um, and that kind of, to be honest, goes against, if we will, some of our best practices here. Um, you know, typically if you've been on our webinars, we harp a lot on, you know, removing elements, making it as slim as possible, getting people through the process. Well, in this instance, we wanted to see, you know, perhaps adding an element helps. You know, they're about to click that red button. They're about to make that decision. And perhaps showing a visual element helps them connect and maybe is that, is that point that helps push them over the edge. Um, in the cart details process, what's not pictured here is we added an element where you could actually hover over the ticket details and actually see and review everything. Um, we thought that that was also another key point. Um, knowing the demographics that use this site, a lot of people want to make sure. I mean, they're booking a family vacation. You don't want to mess that up. Um, and so double checking we thought would be a very strong point for this. We also did some copy optimization and explaining some of the services that they have, um, such as like insurance, things like that. Um, and then at, towards the bottom of the page, we didn't actually really change that much. We changed the ordering of the payment details and the delivery. Um, but other than that, we didn't change too, too much. What's hard to see uh, with how this image was captured was we did add some step indicators on each one of those headings um, to kind of indicate where they're at in the process. Um, one thing that in talking with the team here and interviewing some people, we felt that the orange headers throughout the process created some hard stops in the decision process. It was a, a bit obtrusive in color and it maybe caused you to be a little bit more cautious or rethink every time you're going to a new section. So one thing that we did was to clean that up a little bit and provide kind of a cleaner process. Let's look at them side by side and length. One thing that's interesting to note is 
We kept the phone numbers on both um, and tracked those as well. So that was something that we considered as something in the conversion recording process. And so these are the results that we saw. A pretty, so, a pretty decent uh, gain in conversion, especially since this is a checkout process. 13% for the largest travel site for the UK is tons of dollars. And in fact, this test alone paid for our engagement for research. So the yield of this was quite large. Um, but I, what I wanted to point out as well is on first glance, if you, depending on how you collected the data, the change actually didn't seem to be that much. So one thing that we had to consider was they have an internal call center that uses the site to book things on uh, the actual checkout process. So without scrubbing those visits out of the test, with that result, I mean, 6%, given the IT build-out, maintenance, and all that, it, we might think it's not worth it to really uh, make the changes to that site. But uh, what we wanted to point out here is how important it is to set up your test correctly and uh, collecting that information and making sure that you're aware of what's coming into your test and what could really skew the data. So a couple key principles we want to take away. Be aware of how on-page elements can make the process seem longer or induce more stops throughout the thought process. We talked about the headings on there, that that could be a strong influencer of the conversion rate. Also, it, you know, we'd like to, to test it more in isolation, but it would appear that adding some elements to the process, like an image and a checkout process, can provide some value where, you know, some of our more best practices might say, let's remove as much as we can and keep it slim and trim. Maybe that's not necessarily the case depending on the product and how emotional of a sell it is. Um, and then lastly, it's, it's important not to rely solely just on metric tools alone because at the end of the day, it's people that use these tools and that's where your strength's gonna be. One of my favorite speakers uh, in the metrics field is Avinash and he has a saying, invest 90% in people and 10% of the tools. Because as you saw here, just tools alone can really steer you in the wrong direction. And it's about how you use them and how you use them properly that gets you uh, to making more money or getting more leads or really performing better for your visitors. So with that, I'm gonna turn it back over to Dan. Thanks, Corey. I just wanted to ask you real quick. You've got a ton of analytics and metrics experience. What are some of the common uh, errors you've seen and misconceptions people have around analytics and metrics software, and then just any measurement software in general? Well, I, uh, to be honest, I, I think a lot of the errors and the measurement issues come with people that rely on purchasing metrics or just uh, not really investing a lot in the tool. They don't invest in the people. They just take tools for what they are they think I'm going to install them and they're just going to work. And so they're not aware of how tools actually collect information. They're not aware of the really the people that are coming into the process or the technology that's involved with it. Um, and so with that, they just can draw false conclusions. I mean, the internet's a dynamic place. Website and the technologies are changing all the time. And sometimes that takes working on your metrics side by side on, a, on accommodating those. And again, people just buy sometimes really expensive metrics programs, but don't invest in the people that's actually looking at them or understanding it. Um, and then what happens is you have this data that wasn't collected correctly, but it's, it's supporting false assumptions. So you feel even more strongly about them with this false data. So that's where the really the issues come into play. So I would recommend that you invest in training with these tools. A lot of metric providers like Omniture and Google offer classes out there. 
Um, there's a lot of consultants out there that you can hire as well for training, things like that. So uh, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what problems I see because it, there's so many out there. I think it's really a people problem, not necessarily a tool problem. Yeah, our own director of sciences, Bob Kemper, has a great quote. He says, it's like letting an eight-year-old play with a chainsaw. So <laughs> you've got to have the right tools and the right people. All right, thanks a lot, Corey. With that, let's move on to lesson number four. Channel motivation is still the most determinative force of offer response. John, what the heck does that mean? All right, it's actually a really straightforward lesson, and um, I want to share it quickly. It's, it's very straightforward, but first let me go ahead and get into some of the details of the test. So um, I was working with a B2C uh, client that was uh, actually had a very significant online and offline presence. I'm talking masses and masses of visitors. Um, depending on the kind of experiment, I could validate it in a day or two. Um, it's, uh, that's kind of unheard of. So uh, it was a, a really good opportunity. The goal here was to increase retail appointment conversions, so uh, lead generation. And initially, we were focusing on PPC. Primary research question. We wanted to know how a significant reduction in process friction would uh, affect the KPI. And our approach was an A-B split on the conversion process. Uh, let me just uh, kind of give you an overview of the process itself. Now, we initially started testing on this product page, and it was coming from the PPC channel. And behind this product page was this process. But it wasn't just three steps. It was eight, a lot of steps. And some of those steps were actually uh, a little redundant. Uh, initially, the partner was uh, very, uh, they're, they're very close to these steps. They, they loved these steps. They, it was, they just wanted to keep them. Uh, so we started our testing with the clarity of value on the product page and didn't see any results. So then we moved to the next step. We have to reduce this process friction. So we got rid of three and four. Essentially what we did is we tried to reduce as many steps as possible. That included uh, about three or uh, four steps plus some actually uh, some unnecessary form fields. So there was a, a serious reduction in the amount of work that the visitor had to go through in order to get this thing that they were seeking. Uh, and just a quick note, um, once we made this change, we decided not only just to run it on the paid search, but we actually had an opportunity to run it through internal traffic on the main site and uh, also through banner ad traffic and even the homepage. So let's look at the results. PPC, marvelous. 534%. That's actually uh, one of the biggest gains I've seen. And um, when the difference between 0.34 and 2.16, uh, considering the volume of visitors that I was looking at, was very significant. So um, it was actually very meaningful. Uh, on the main site, same change, exact same change, just different channel, uh, 357%. And uh, it, the conversion rate on this one looked like, it was, looked like a really big jump there. Again, uh, we were feeling great and wonderful on top of the world. And then we went to banner ads, 28%. Um, I was expecting a little bit more. Uh, but I, you know, I was forewarned too. Uh, there are people with opinions about certain types of traffic, and that, that's not really the point here. Ultimately, what I want to highlight is this: uh, I assumed that one change in one channel would mean the same kind of uh, result in another channel. And while that was the case with similar uh, channels of motivation, that certainly wasn't the case for the banner traffic, and, um, and it certainly doesn't mean it will be the case for certain channels of traffic that you're working with. 
All right. Thanks a lot, John. I had a great uh, back and forth with at lead gen on Twitter today. She said, uh, interesting stuff. Channels represent different demographics. They really shouldn't, though, if you're targeting, right? And I said, uh, great point. But, uh, you know, think of it this way. If you're targeting uh, people buying a Justin Bieber product, you would target maybe Justin Bieber fans through Twitter, but maybe their parents through a PPC ad. So, again, while you're targeting, uh, they can perform differently through different channels. Let's jump into the next question from our audience. We got this beforehand. It was, what, is on, what online marketing and testing tools would you recommend by Peter Buhager? hope I'm pronouncing that right. Who would like to jump in and answer that? Actually, um, I can go ahead and, and give a quick answer before I hand it over to our metrics master. Um, <laughs> just one thing that I would recommend is to find a testing tool, be it test and target or something that allows you to not just do A-B split or, you know, just page testing, but something that will allow you to do a custom setup. Uh, for example, there are many opportunities I've had with research partners to do category page testing where I've got maybe three or four different pages, but they all share the same template. Um, you know, and in this change, what, you know, you would do is you would change certain parts of that template and you would implement that across the board. Well, you can't necessarily do that in analytics or, I'm sorry, Google Website Optimizer. So having a testing tool that allows you to do custom setup in a way that will allow you to test uh, or more options to test is definitely something that I would recommend. All right, this is Corey. Uh, we work with a lot of tools here. Um, I think that in the way of testing tools, we've seen the most consistency with Google and Omniture products. Google Website Optimizer obviously is free, so that's a benefit, but uh, it can take some massaging, if you will, to get it to work uh, in certain applications. Uh, Omniture can be used by a little bit more uh, of a uh, wider audience sometimes uh, because they break down things a little bit more, but there's also substantial cost sometimes for that implementation. So in the way of testing, we've seen the most uh, uptime and reliability from those tools. Um, they also stay pretty consistent with releasing features, things like that. Um, in the way of marketing tools, uh, we use quite a bit of research tools here, so using things like Compete, Hoover's, things like that to gather information on who your demographics are coming into the page. Even Google and DoubleClick offer some great tools, uh, even Nielsen. Um, so things like that can give you insights on understanding who those people are. Uh, I would also say uh, read up on blogs and see what um, your colleagues are doing as well. Um, sometimes we borrow some ideas from other people, make them better, or you know, fit them for our purposes. Uh, one tool that I'd like to highlight actually that we've been using specifically here that we've seen some good results in is this tool called Kiss Insights. Um, basically, real quickly, it's a survey tool. So it's a way for you to launch surveys on your site. Now I know what you're thinking because this was exactly me. I hate those surveys. They are so annoying, and they pop right when you don't want them to. Or you come to a home page, and it's asking you to give feedback before you even visit it. Um, so what I like about Kiss Insights is there's a lot more customability to the product. It allows you to customize the questions. The way it displays is a lot easier on the user. Uh, it also gives you some flexibility on how they answer them. Um, overall, it's a really great product, and we've seen some really tremendous response rates from it. Um, so I would highly recommend implementing tools not just for testing, but also collecting feedback from your customers as well because, again, instead of trying to guess what we think users want, it's oftentimes better to talk with people 
in our organizations that talk with them or ask them directly. I think that sometimes we're a little bit scared to talk to our customers, but we're finding out that a lot of times they don't mind talking to us, and it's not going to make them angry. You just need to do your due diligence and doing it correctly um, and not being obtrusive to their visit. Um, so that's uh, some of the recommendations that we have. But always open for feedback. If you guys are trying something out there that you really like, let us know. We'd really like to uh, try some new things out there, let you know what we feel about it, um, and kind of help you steer you guys in the right direction. Thanks, Corey. And one thing he mentioned, my favorite thing he mentioned, was look at some blogs for advice. And if I may give a, a plug for a blog, the Marketing Experiments blog on there recently, uh, <laughs> Dina Townsend has been writing a series of blog posts about online testing and optimization solutions. I tweeted the most recent link using hashtag WebClinic. You could go to that link. You can see the most recent blog post at the bottom. You can link to all the other blog posts where she's reviewed different online testing and optimization tools. Okay, let's go on to our next lesson, number five, strategy over style. The, the funniest thing to me about this lesson is our own Adam Lapp is giving it, and if, this is one of the most styling guys I know. He comes in every day with his Kanye West sunglasses and his Live Simply hat, and he's telling us strategy over style. All right, Adam, what do you have for us? Sure, so I'm, I'm getting the wrap it up uh, message from the stage director, Austin, so I'm going to be brief on this. But, but really, um, you know, when you look at the Internet marketing community, you really see two types of people. You see those who are really into a good-looking web page. It doesn't have to work. I just want it to look good when people go there. And there's the, the dichotomy, the opposite side that says, I need something that works. I don't care what it looks like. Obviously, from the marketing experiments uh, motto, to discover what works, we're that second group. So we'll take a look at a test that, uh, that tries to discover the real answer to this question on which group is correct. Uh, so this is a case study for a end-to-end -end company who provides solutions for small and medium-sized businesses, and our objective was to increase the lead generation rate. Here's the control page, which uh, comes from a series of tests, uh, the original gaining uh, over 200%. And you'll see from this page, um, you know, it's a white background, uh, it's mostly text, very few images, not very attractive to your average uh, person who arrives on it. But what it does have correctly is, uh, is the value proposition is clear up front. Uh, the values are specifically identified. There's bullet points, so it's easy to read. Uh, the tone of the form is set up your free access rather than give me your information. And we do have some great credibility indicators there. So the treatment page, you'll notice, has all of that same stuff, uh, yet it has you know, clip art images, uh, stock photo, uh, nice banner on the top, uh, blue background behind it. So we're adding that level of, of design, that layer on top of the strategic page that we already created. And so here are the two side by side, easy to see the, the differences. And the result was only a 2% gain. And really with uh, you know, the traffic coming to this page, that wasn't enough to really validate any results. Uh, so uh, we, we pitched these results to the research partner and, you know, what we could confidently say was over this two to three week period, the good looking page did not perform any worse than the control. Uh, so because they were looking for something that was appealing to customers, they decided to go forth and push the good looking page live. What we learned from this test is that a well-designed page does not necessarily always 
convert better than a page that is strategically designed. You may have heard the old adage on web clinics before, if you're a long-time listener, that ugly converts. And that's not to say that an ugly page will do better than a good-looking page. It's just basically saying that uh, for a page to convert highly, uh, you definitely have to have uh, some strategy involved rather than just relying on design only. And the best scenario is to fuse both of those together, both strategy and style, uh, to achieve you know both sides of the coin. Thanks a lot, Adam. I am doing our last lesson, lesson number six. You may know more than you think about optimizing social media campaigns. This right here, this is the only uh, example case study that we're talking about today that we did not perform ourselves. I am not an optimizer like these smart people in the room. I'm the director of editorial content for Marketing Experiments and Marketing Sherpa. At Marketing Sherpa, what we do is we report. We go out and find out what you, the marketers, are doing. And this is one of those cases. The contributor, the agency itself, was called Adams Hussey and Associates, and they were working with a nonprofit organization called the California State Parks Foundation. They're trying to attract new activists for California State Parks through Facebook. So let's see what they did. First of all, they already were communicating with what they call multi-channel marketing. They were communicating in a number of ways. And so when they initiated the Facebook campaign, they had a lot of ways to reach out to an audience already and tell them about Facebook. They used direct mail. They used telemarketing. They used email. And the goal is to get as many of their current members as possible engaged on Facebook. You're probably facing similar challenges if uh, you already have a big audience, uh, either offline or in other online mediums, say with an email list, and you're looking to try to get them engaged through social media as well. So what do they do? Well, here's the original page, and if you're familiar with, all, with Facebook at all, you're probably familiar with the wall. This is what visitors would get by default if they landed on the California State Parks Foundation uh, Facebook page. So... And what they did is, much like Ronald Reagan challenged to Mr. Gorbachev, they teared down that wall. Look what they did. What they basically did was create a landing page for their Facebook page. All they did is create some of the basic principles of optimization that we constantly teach about landing pages, and they gave a, a landing page offer here with real value and a very clear message about what to do. So one thing we talk about, uh, if you've listened to pe uh, previous web clinics, is that there should be no unsupervised thinking, okay? Your audience is going to get to a page. They have no idea what to do. You, you, you live and breathe what you do. You live and breathe your products. But your audience probably gets to a page. They have no clue. Who knows where they came from, okay? What they did, they made it very clear right at the top. Click to become a fan to join the conversation. If someone knows nothing about Facebook, they know what to do right there. You can land on a page. You can send it to your grandmother. She would know what to do. And since then, to make things more confusing, Facebook has changed that to the like, bu the like button. If you're, if you're familiar with the like button, that is even less clear of what it does than become a fan. So the clarity is very important, and, and that's one thing they did here. And let's look at the results. So they got over 30,000 fans in two weeks. They had 517 fans originally. They went up to 33,000. Right now they have 60,000. One of the coolest things about this is they were running a program to uh, fight the California government. They were trying to cut back uh, California State Parks funding. I think they were trying to cut a large percentage of parks, just close them totally. And this campaign was so successful that it became a proof point in media. It became a proof point, for example, in the San Francisco Chronicle article that you're seeing right here, where they use that as proof to say, hey, look, people really do care about the parks. People really do care about the California State Parks Foundation. That's a hugely successful marketing campaign where the results from your marketing campaign are highlighted in newspaper articles and other media to show whatever point you're trying to make is essentially valid. So let's very quickly look at the key principles. 
First of all, you've heard us say before, people still buy from people. People buy from people. They don't buy from websites. They don't buy from emails. Social media is simply another media. Do not feel challenged about it. The media may change, but people don't. The simple principles that we've taught you on previous web clinics go back to the ancient Greeks about how to tell a story and about how to convince someone of a point. Secondly, the basic means that we've taught you before about offer response principles that you've learned from landing page optimization, such as reducing friction, such as reducing unsupervised thinking and having clarity to your value proposition apply to social media as well. I'll, I'd even say they might apply more to social media because each social media platform is a little different. Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. And if you work in that every day, you're probably very familiar with the different functions of how a retweet works or how a like works or how the different things work. But your audience may not be, especially if you're trying to drive audience, say, from email or another channel into social media. They might not know anything about that platform. So you have to do a little education there. You have to make it clear. And that's why their landing page, I think, their landing page on the Facebook page was so successful because they made it very clear. Just click on that button there. Just click on that Become a Fan button, which is now a Like button. If no one knew anything about Facebook, they could follow that simple direction. With that, let's dive into a question from our audience. What's next for social media? Who wants to gaze into their crystal ball? Well, I'll take the lead on this. And first, I'll just say that everything that I'm going to predict will probably never happen. Uh, you know, who would have guessed 10 years ago that Facebook would overtake MySpace, that people would not really even use MySpace anymore? Who would have predicted that Twitter... Uh, you know, the NFL would have problems with their players tweeting during games. We would have never predicted that 10 years ago, uh, but that's the reality today. But I have two things that I see happening. Uh, number one is, is pretty simple. It's uh, uh, social networks, um, you know, moving more towards a, a limited type of sharing and social interactivity. And by that I mean if you look at Twitter, it's really a game when you, when you uh, log on to Twitter to, to see how many followers you can gain. And really people are just posting random messages about a trending topic. You know, somebody may have never even listened to Justin Bieber before, but they post a tweet about Justin Bieber just to gain more followers. And so what that does, it just, you know, uh, convolutes all of, the, uh, all of the value that's on Twitter with, with a lot of trash. The other thing is... Uh, is um, I see a, a kind of a, a mix happening between uh, the great value of blogs that, that uh, you'll find in a lot of places and then sort of the small value of, of, of tweeting and so sort of a, a mix in between. Uh, so maybe instead of limiting to 140 characters, uh, there's a, a new sharing platform that you know, says that you must type in uh, a paragraph or a maximum of two paragraphs. And so what you'll get is a blend between the quality that you receive from blogs and uh, sort of the, you know, the trash, the stuff you don't want to read on Twitter and actually come up with something good. And I like to uh, trademark that, that new uh, social medium as twogging. Twogging? Yeah, twogging. So go out, go forth and use that phrase if you feel, uh, feel, feel like it. By the way, thanks a lot, Adam. I tweeted about Justin Bieber today to get more fans, and now I feel ridiculous. I've got to go and delete that. I just want to add, too, for all the questions we're showing, we got several versions of these questions. My favorite version of this question was, when are the social media idiots going to fail chaotically? Thanks, Eric. I'm guessing you're not invested in any of these products. All right, here is a quick summary. I'm going to put it on the screen of everything you've heard today. We're just going to leave it up there and let you look at that while we answer some of your questions because we're running out of time. Feel free to add 
your own anecdotes about the summary that we're showing you using hashtag WebClinic. All right, let's jump right in. Pamela asked, what is an acceptable conversion rate? John, what do you say, 100%, 110? Uh, three, thank <laughs> you. No, um, it, it, that's really, it's kind of a funny question because it's like asking somebody what's an acceptable amount of personal income, right? Certainly not any less, right? Or maybe sometimes just a little more or enough for you to focus on what's important to you. Really, I mean, it's, to me, it's what's acceptable enough to move on to the next area of opportunity. It really, it, honestly, it depends on what it's up against, um, your standards, your baselines, the rest of the industry standards, and then what else you've got coming up next to it. So, um, it, you know, it's relative. It really is. It's relative. What you need to do is you need a test plan. You need to find what those standards are in the industry. You need to define those standards for you. You need to look at your transactional data. You need to look at your analytics. And then you need to try and redefine them. And, um, but limit that to how much, limit how much you try to redefine it um, uh, based on the next best opportunity you have in the lineup. So hopefully that answers it. Thanks a lot, John. Let's jump to our next question. This is from Peter. When running split tests, do you recommend doing it real time at the same time or one after the other? In other words, sequential. Dustin, what do you think of that? Right. As a general rule, we would recommend running them real time. Um, we've done uh, webinars and blog posts and different research about threats to validity. One of those threats to validity is the historical threat to validity. Basically saying, um, you know, an example would be running a e-commerce testing um, over from November to December. Um, obviously, the one end of November, beginning of December is going to perform a lot better than the beginning of November. Um, so by running them real time, you're essentially lessening the historical effect uh, of that threat to validity. Thanks. And if you're interested in what the heck he's talking about, that can get a little confusing. We have an online testing course that teaches about it at markingexperiments.com slash training. The history effect, it just sounds so complex there. It sounds very impressive, Dustin. All right, let's jump to the next question. Is SEO becoming obsolete? Brian wants to know that. Corey, do you have any thoughts about that? Search engine optimization, obsolete. Uh, quickly, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> SEO is still supremely important. We still use search uh, a ton to get the information that we have. I think that... It's actually important as being downplayed in a uh, non-justifiable way, to be honest. The thing that you have to consider, though, is what master are you trying to serve? Because optimization and your users sometimes is a different beast than trying to get your rankings up higher. And so you need to really marry the two. Um, if your concentration is SEO and getting your ranking up, sometimes that can really destroy the usability um, and really how well your page uh, flows. You have a bunch of links on your page. You're concentrated on how many elements I can add, how many keywords I can stuff into my content, and a lot of times that can get in the way of how people digest the content and how well your page performs. So you need to be aware of SEO. It is not obsolete. It is still supremely important. Um, but you also have to come up to a point where you say, this could increase my ranking a little bit, but for keeping the visit and serving my visitors the best that I can, I have to forego this and keep a good process and maybe go to another channel to get traffic. Um, but you do need to be aware of it, but don't let it rule your life because it can destroy your pages and also hurt your conversion rates in the long run. So just keep that in mind. Thanks a lot, Corey. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. If you're interested in getting some training and learning what these 
research analyst right here do. You can go to markingexperiments.com slash training to improve your optimization techniques. You can also go to markingexperiments.com slash partners to learn how to become a research partner and work with all these friendly folks in a one-on-one -on -one basis. I would like to thank, we got Corey, Adam, John, Dustin, Gabby, we got Doelle and Austin and Bob and Bethany. Thank you everyone for helping out with this web clinic. Thank you for signing in and attending. Have a great new year. Have a great happy holidays. We will see you next year in January when I think we're going to be teaching about PPC or something. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you for listening to this recording of a Marketing Experiments live web clinic. You can sign up to receive invites to future live web clinics, as well as receive access to $10 million worth of Internet marketing research at marketingexperiments.com. Thank you.